Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. I'll be preaching this morning verses 31 through 42. So John, chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. And as you turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that You would speak to us now through the reading and preaching of Your Word in John, chapter 10. We know that You have given us Your Word, all of Your Word, that You have inspired it, that it is holy and errant and infallible and useful for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study this, that it might bear much fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 10, verses 31-42. through 42. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. And He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there He remained. And many came to Him, and they said to Him, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in Him there. May God bless the reading of His holy word. The church say, Amen. Amen. This morning, all of you are being summoned for jury duty. Let the shock wear off for a moment. You didn't expect that when you arrived at church this morning, but consider this your jury summons. Today, during the sermon, all of you are going to hear a case. You're going to hear a charge. Evidence is going to be presented and you're going to be asked to make a verdict. All of this began back in John chapter 7 when Jesus, after He had fed the 5,000 and began to grow in popularity, Jesus' brothers, who ironically did not even believe in Him, suggested to Jesus that because the feast of booths, this Jewish holiday was approaching, that Jesus should go up into Jerusalem and publicly show Himself and His works there in Jerusalem that His disciples might see them. The thinking is that here they are in Galilee, this is small time, this is the backwoods of Israel, and if Jesus is going to have a remarkable ministry and popular ministry 
he needed to get the social media people involved. He, he, he needed to get some publicity. He needed to get some good PR. And this Jewish feast, the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, was the time to do it. Jesus does go, we talked about this, he, he does go up into Jerusalem and begins to reveal his works. It was there that Jesus healed a man born blind from birth. It was here that Jesus began to teach and tell people about himself. And it was here also that Jesus debated as well with the Jewish leaders. This whole section in the Gospel of John, John 7 through 10, is what we call the festival cycle. And most of it is comprised of, comprised of Jesus' time in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. And here with this last section, the Feast of Dedication, you see that there in verse 22. Here we are at the end of Jesus' time in Jerusalem, and what does Jesus have to show for it? Does He have the large gathering of disciples that His brothers indicated that He would have if He went to Jerusalem and showed Himself publicly? No! There's no large crowd of people ready to crown Jesus as King. Instead, there is a mob. And they are ready to stone Jesus. He's revealed Himself, displayed His works as His brother said He should do, and here is the mob, and they are ready to stone Jesus. You and I are invited in on this trial of Jesus. It's not the official trial yet, but it's a trial. There's a charge, there's evidence, and there's a verdict. You and I are invited in on that as we read and study this passage of Scripture. And each and every time that you doubt your faith in Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to remember this sermon, and I want you to go back to God's Word, and I want you to go back to the works of Jesus, and I want you to review the evidence. I want you to review the evidence presented and your faith will be strengthened. Each and every time you have a doubt if Jesus is truly the Messiah, each and every time you have a doubt if what He said was true, each and every time you have a doubt if Jesus' promises are not just true in general, but true and applicable for you personally, I want you to go back and review the evidence. And if you review the evidence, your faith will be strengthened. What's this charge against Jesus in this passage? What's the charge against Jesus? Let's look at this together. Here's the charge that we see that's been hurled at Jesus. Jesus is a blasphemer. Jesus is a blasphemer. We see that there in verse 33, don't we? The Jewish leaders say to Jesus, we're going to stone you for blasphemy. In fact, they've really skipped the trial, so to speak. And when we look at verse 31, they have already picked up stones with which to stone Jesus. 
You need to get the picture in your mind here of what's taking place. Imagine the scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a Jewish holiday, the Feast of Dedication, and he is in the the temple area, and next to the temple area is a place called Solomon's Colonnade. And it was a portico area with columns and a covered area, and it was part of the original structure of Solomon's temple. And so it was a beloved place of the Jews there at what we often call Herod's Temple. And it is here at Solomon's Colonnade that the mob has gathered around Jesus and the Jewish leaders have begun to interrogate Jesus. It's here that Jesus declared to them in verse 30 that I and the Father are one. And so with this statement, you can imagine this large gathering of people who are around Jesus and people begin to appear in the crowd holding something in their hand. What are they holding in their hand? Well, they're stones. Why do they have stones? in their hand. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They're so offended by what Jesus has said, they are ready to put him to death. You can imagine that as people begin to appear in the crowd and Jesus sees this and knowing this begins to defend himself, doesn't he? Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You Notice that word there, good. Good works. It's not just works that Jesus has done. They're good works. Why are they good works? Well, Jesus is the good shepherd, isn't he? We already learned about this in this chapter. Jesus is the The noble shepherd, we could translate that word. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd to end all other shepherds. He is the shepherd that the prophet Ezekiel declared would come and shepherd God's people and make one flock of God's people that he would call his sheep to himself and he would care for them. He's the good and noble shepherd. And because he's the good and noble shepherd, The works that Jesus does are what? They're good and noble too. And so Jesus asks them, hey, look, before you stone me, which of the good works that I've done are you going to stone me for? The Jews answer him in verse 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. It's not for any of those. Now, They had already tried to discredit Jesus' works, haven't they? Remember how Jesus healed the blind man who was born blind? The Jewish leaders tried to discredit the miracle. They didn't believe it. They interrogated the man who'd been healed and they call his parents as witnesses in the trial and say, tell us, is this your son? And tell us, was he born blind? And they're trying to discredit the miracles of Jesus. And, And some even say, well, he is healing the blind because he's insane and has a demon. And there was a schism among the Jewish leaders. And some of the Jewish leaders said, It's completely illogical. Insane men with demons don't open the eyes of the blind. So they're no longer able to discredit Jesus' 
good works. And because they can't discredit Jesus' good works, what's the charge against Him? The charge is with His words. Look again at verse 33. We're going to stone you not for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. It's interesting if we think about the culture and the day and age in which we live, people still charge Jesus with blasphemy, not because they are zealous defenders of monotheism like the Jews during Jesus' day, but they are defenders of another kind of religion, aren't they? It's religious pluralism. You see, if Jesus says that He's God and that the only way to the Father is through Him, and if Jesus has said that He's one with the Father, then the implication there is that the only way to the Father, that the only way to God is through whom? It's through Jesus. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the door for the sheep. If you want to come into the fold, you have to come through the Shepherd. He has to call you. You have to respond to Him. He has to open the door for you. He has to bring you into His sheepfold. So for Jesus to say that He's God and that He is one with the Father is an indication then, and the Jews knew this, that the only way to God would be through Jesus. Our culture today hates that, doesn't it? We live in a culture of religious pluralism and moral relativism, and people claim and say that they can do what? They can find their own way to God. You have your truth and I have my truth. You have your way to God and maybe that's through Jesus or maybe that's through religion or maybe that's through a church or maybe you just discover the divine being inside yourself and, and each and every person can find their own way to God whatever path seems right to them. We have a, a fancy phrase for this in theology. We call it Oprah theology. Kind of teaching you see on TV, right? It's the kind of teaching you see in the media. Find your own way to God. Really is a logical fallacy when you begin to think about it, isn't it? Because if you can find your own way to God, then the God that you find is not a God. This is something that Bob Inc. has made so clear in his book, The Wonderful Works of God. God must condescend down to us. If we're going to know anything about God, God has to reveal Himself to us. And if the God that we found is not a God who's revealed Himself to us, then it's not a God worth serving. It is a God that we have created in our own image. It's an idol that we've constructed in our own lives. Jesus here, His statements are so controversial, not just 2,000 years ago with the Jewish leaders defending monotheism, it's still controversial today. People want to be able to find their own way to God, find their own path to God, look within themselves, look wherever they want. But if they come to Jesus, then they have to come humbly. Confessing their sins. Submitting to His Lordship. Jesus 
is not just standing at the door and knocking on your heart saying, please let me in. He calls you. He's a king. Commands you and I to bend the knee and submit to His Lordship and reign. So controversial in our day and age, 2,000 years later, people are still charging Jesus with the same thing that the Jews were in this passage. Jesus is nothing more than a blasphemer. Was that true? We should examine that for a moment, shouldn't we? Here's the charge. Jesus is a blasphemer. But what does the evidence say? Well, Jesus defends Himself. Jesus presents three pieces of evidence in His defense that proves that He's the Son of God. So, before we convict Jesus, before we render a verdict, we need to hear His Defense. Let's look at these three pieces of evidence that Jesus presents that He's the Son of God. Evidence number one. Look with me at verse 34. Jesus goes straight to the Scripture. He goes straight to the Scripture. Is it not written in your law? Just a little side mark here. It's interesting. Jesus here quotes directly from Psalm 82.6. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, is it not written in your Psalms? Jesus says, is it not written in your law? Why does He do that? Because all of God's Word is God's law and given to us for our instruction and correction. Even the Psalms. So Jesus says here in verse 34, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now this is, seems strange to us on the outset, but... It'll become clear if we go back and read Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, it's a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph condemns the leaders in Israel. God is presented as the holy judge who takes his rightful position among the council of heaven and begins to weigh the verdict, who begins to look at the evidence of the wicked leaders in Israel. They're not caring for the poor. They're not caring for the needy. They're not attending to the needs of the fatherless and the widow. They're showing favoritism. They're not ruling and reigning justly. They exalt themselves as princes of the land. They exalt themselves of having special privileges from God. And God is the judge. And He's going to righteously Judge them who boast of themselves as having a divinely sanctioned position of authority over God's people in Israel. So in Psalm 82.6, we read, I said you are God's. Small g-o-d. The leaders in Israel, they have a divinely commissioned responsibility. They act as the Lord's servants. They act as the Lord's rulers. They act as the Lord's shepherds. That's what Psalm 82.6 is saying. They are to act in place. They are to render judgment on behalf of God in accordance with God's law and rule and reign. God calls them gods. But because they have ruled and reigned unjustly, the psalmist says, 
You're going to die like any ordinary man. The divine judge, the one God in heaven, the true God, who rules and reigns over all the nations, is going to judge you, and you are going to die like any ordinary man. You exalt yourself as a prince, you're going to die like a pauper. And God is going to judge you. Jesus here, it seems strange to us, but what Jesus is doing is He is making an argument from the lesser to the greater, isn't He? What Jesus is saying is, look, there's biblical precedence in Psalm 82.6 where God calls people, God, who have a divinely commissioned responsibility. And if that's already a precedent set in Psalm 82.6, why should you be so surprised when the true judge comes, the Son of God comes, and calls Himself the Son of God? So you get the logic here. Look at verse 35. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of whom of him of whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So Jesus is saying there's already biblical precedence for this. You shouldn't be surprised when the Son of God comes and says, He's God. Furthermore, I think what Jesus is doing here by quoting Psalm 82, He's passing judgment on these Jewish leaders He's already called thieves and robbers and hirelings who are afraid of the wolf. He's already declared judgment on them. He's already said that they're not true shepherds in Israel. And so by quoting Psalm 82, not only is he saying there's a biblical precedent for Jesus to come and say He's the Son of God, but the same God is also the one who's come to declare judgment on the wicked rulers in Israel. So that's the first piece of evidence. It's the evidence from Scripture. The second piece of evidence that Jesus presents is the evidence of Jesus fulfilling the Jewish feasts. I've already indicated to you, we call this the festival cycle. It's at the Feast of Booths where the Jews celebrated and commemorated God's provision for them in the wilderness. For 40 years, God provided for them as they lived in tents, as they lived in booths, as they lived in tabernacles in the wilderness. God miraculously provided for them bread from heaven. God miraculously fed them. God miraculously gave them water to drink. God's presence was there with them in the wilderness with the glory cloud by day and the fire of God by night. And it was here that Jesus, when He stood up in the temple and said, During the Feast of Booths, if any man thirsts, let him come unto Me and drink. Jesus was saying, I'm the one that this festival has been pointing to. I'm the one who truly gives God's people a drink. When Jesus stood up and declared that He is the light of the world, it was Jesus' way of saying, just like God's presence was with you in the wilderness as a fire by night, I have come in the flesh to dwell among you. This festival has been pointing to 
me. And just as God directed Israel like a shepherd does his sheep in the wilderness, it's the way the Old Testament describes the wilderness wanderings, God cared for his people like a shepherd cares for his sheep while they were in the wilderness. Jesus comes, and it's not by accident that he says during the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the good shepherd. It all makes sense now, right? You see, Jesus fulfills this feast. It's all been pointing to him. Here in this passage of Scripture, in verse 22, we read that they, Jesus was there for the Feast of Dedication. What was the Feast of Dedication? Feast of Dedication took place, you can read about it in the book of Maccabees or in Josephus, when the wicked, evil ruler Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem, convinced God's people to stop following the Lord and desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar in honor of Zeus. These actions by Antiochus Epiphanes led to a militaristic revolt by the Maccabees. Judas Maccabee. Judas the Hammer Maccabee. Who led God's people in warfare and revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And they were able to take Jerusalem back. And Judas Maccabeus rededicated, reconsecrated God's temple for pure and holy, devout worship unto the Lord. Isn't it interesting that one of the ways that Jesus describes Himself of the Gospel of John is that He is a temple. He says that, and I believe it's in John chapter 2, Jesus refers to the temple of His body. We see that in the prologue of John's Gospel, that the Word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled, dwelt among God's people. Isn't it interesting here what Jesus says in verse 36? Do you say of Him whom the Father, what? What did the Father do? Consecrated and sent into the world. Jesus is saying that pure, holy, true, devout, consecrated worship happens through whom now? It's not a trick question. It happens through Jesus. Didn't He tell the Samaritan woman this at the well? She asked Him, where's the right place to worship? Mount Gerizim? Here in Jerusalem? Which mount are we supposed to worship on? What's Jesus say? Questions about to be irrelevant is what Jesus says. True worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Jesus is here and worship is going to happen through Him. So what Jesus is saying in defense, let's come back to the evidence here, it's not absurd for Jesus to claim He's the Son of God because He is the one coming through whom pure and holy worship is going to happen. He's the one who fulfills these festivals. Here's the third piece of evidence that we see. The good works. The good works of the good shepherd. Jesus has already asked him, which of my good works are you going to stone me for? 
None. We're going to stone you for blaspheming. Look at what Jesus responds in verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's pretty hard to deny the man who opens the eyes of the blind. It's pretty hard to deny the man who heals the lame. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't just do miracles. They're not miracles in the Gospel of John per se. They're what? They're signs. John calls them signs. And so these works of Jesus, these miracles of Jesus, are signs that John has handpicked for us as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, re-examine the evidence of the signs and you will see that I am the Son of God. The last sign that Jesus is going to do in the Gospel of John happens in the next chapter. Do you know what it is? Raising Lazarus from the dead. And the Jews are going to say, if we let him continue like this, doing all these signs, the whole world is going to believe in him. The Romans are going to come in here and take away our place and take away our nation. Jesus is saying, the works, those signs, they're irrevocable. You can't deny them. How does John conclude his gospel in John chapter 20? Jesus did many other what? Signs. Not miracles. Signs. Jesus did many other signs than this. But these have been recorded... These have been written down so that you may do what? Believe. And that by believing you might have life in His name. The signs are like evidence in a trial. When we have doubts, we need to go back and review the evidence, don't we? We need to review the evidence from God's Word that Jesus is the Christ. We need to review the evidence of the signs that pointed to Jesus. We need to review the evidence of the works that Jesus did. And they draw a clear conclusion for us that Jesus is the Son of God. It reminds us when we have doubts, when we have struggles. There's a lot of things that you can do in preaching. You can explain a text to someone, you can apply a text to someone, or you can prove a passage to someone, or you can remind. A lot of what preachers do is just reminding. I haven't really told you anything today that you don't already know, have I? What have I been doing most of the sermon? Just reminding you of what the Scripture says. How often do you remind yourself of what the Scripture says? Did you know that if you'll take 10 or 15 minutes every single day to remind yourself of what the Scripture says, you'll read the whole Bible in a year. Did you know there's a lot of good, wonderful theological writing out there? And you might say, well, look, I can't sit and read 30 pages of Bob Inc. Hey, I hear you. Can you read five pages a day? Could you read seven or ten pages a day? What would you be able to accomplish in your 
theological reading if you just spent 30 minutes of every day reading some good work of theology? How often do you remind yourself of the evidence by coming and doing what you're doing today? One of the reasons that all of you are here is to be reminded of God's promises, to be reminded of God's Word. You and I need those constant reminders. I texted Travis last Sunday afternoon and said, Travis, I'm praying for you and your sermon. I need to hear the Word tonight, Travis. Please preach and preach to me. It was a good sermon too, I might add. You and I need the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. Can I ask you a question? You attend a small group here at New Covenant. It's a great place to be reminded of the evidence. How often do you attend Sunday school? It's a great place to be reminded of the evidence. Do you bring your kids to Sunday school? Do you want your kids to know about the evidence? Church is a great place for them to hear about the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. So let me just encourage you, review the evidence and review it often. It will strengthen your faith. What's the charge against Jesus? He's a blasphemer. What's the evidence prove? The evidence proves that Jesus is the Son of God. So what's the verdict? I hope you're thinking about that in your own mind here. What's the verdict that we see in this passage? Well, I hate to disappoint you. It's a hung jury. There's not a consensus among people that Jesus is the Son of God. Look here at verse 39. The Jewish leaders, they sought to arrest Jesus. They're not convinced. That's what a lot of people do. Not everyone is going to receive the evidence. Some people reject the evidence. So that's what the Jewish leaders have decided to do. They've rejected the evidence. Jesus Himself leaves Jerusalem and He goes out into the wilderness back at the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Isn't it interesting? In Jerusalem, at the religious epicenter of His day, He's completely rejected and they want to stone Him. He goes out to the wilderness, He receives a warm reception. You've got to love the wisdom of the Lord. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And in verse 41, we read, many came to Him. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's out in the wilderness and many are coming to Him. And notice what they say to Jesus in verse 41. John did no sign. There's this sign language again. John did no sign. No miraculous work from John the Baptist just preaching and baptizing. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And what then did they do? Many believed in him there. You could also just translate that and say many had faith in him there. Same word, believe or have faith. They put their faith and trust 
in Jesus. The evidence was clear for them. They evaluated the evidence. This wasn't a leap of faith in the dark. Not a blind leap of faith. They had examined the evidence. They had heard the preaching of Jesus or the preaching of John the Baptist and all that he had said about Jesus and they had evaluated the evidence that Jesus had presented and now here they are putting their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I will have to do the same thing. We will either have to receive or reject the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Belief in Jesus is not just a belief that Jesus is a historical person or a good teacher or a good moral example or even a divine human. All those things are true of Jesus. He is a good moral example. He is a good teacher. He is a true historical person. And you and I need to believe that. But that's not what these people did. That's not the kind of faith these people had here. They weren't just believing that Jesus was just a true, real person. What they were doing is that they were falling upon Jesus as their Savior. We call this a living faith. Not a dead faith. A living faith. A living faith is what? A living faith is a faith that accepts, receives, and rests in Jesus as the Savior. A living faith is a faith that accepts Jesus, accepts His words, accepts who He is and the work that He's done, receives Him, not just as true out there, but true for you. For you personally. And then rests in that work. That He's your Savior. You're not going to earn God's love. You're not going to earn God's grace. You're not going to earn your mansion in heaven. For you have accepted, received, and now you are resting in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Sometimes you and I might doubt the evidence. We might be tempted like this passage here, to be, to be a hung jury. Let me encourage you every single time to go back to the evidence and reevaluate it, and your faith will be strengthened. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank You for the faith that we have in our Savior Jesus Christ that You have granted to us. We thank You that this Faith is a real, true faith. It's grounded upon real, true, historical evidence. But even more than that, we're thankful that this is a faith that brings the dead back to life. Dead hearts that saves and forgives. Lord, we pray that You would remind us regularly and often of Your promises. And even now, as we come to the Lord's table, may it be a reminder to us, a visible reminder to us, of the evidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.